Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. Welcome to the BIOS Podcast. I'm Jimmy Tian. We're very lucky to have Dr. Robert Pearl join the podcast. Dr. Pearl was the former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group from 1999 to 2017. This is the nation's largest medical group. Dr. Pearl was also the former president of the Mid-Atlantic Permanente Medical Group from 2009 to 2017. In these roles, he led 10,000 physicians, 38,000 staff, and was responsible for the nationally recognized medical care of 5 million Kaiser Permanente members on both the East and the West Coasts. Dr. Pearl is nationally recognized as a physician leader on healthcare delivery. He hosts a popular podcast called Fixing Healthcare and is author of a Washington Post bestseller called Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. I'd like to note that he has donated all the proceeds from this book to Doctors Without Borders. He writes regularly on Forbes and teaches at both the Stanford Medical School and the Stanford Business School. In this episode, I'm joined by Kamal Obad, co-founder and CEO of Nebula Genomics. We talk with Dr. Pearl about how Kaiser has become a leader in quality, access, and price. We talk about the role of tech in the fee-for-service versus the capitation debate. We talk about how to disrupt the fee-for-service system. We discuss how to separate hype from reality in health tech and why tech is approaching healthcare wrong in many cases. Dr. Pearl provides us with some very interesting thoughts on tech, including AI wearables and personal health records. I think the, the best way to get started right now, it'd be great for us to hear straight from you a little bit about your background and, and the type of work you did as CEO at the Permanente Group. Sure. So my background, I went to medical school at Yale and I came to Stanford to do my residency. I'm a surgeon who does reconstructive plastic surgery, fixing children with cleft lip and cleft palate. At the end of my residency, I went to Kaiser Permanente. Uh, the plastic surgeon at Santa Clara had actually died in a tragic plane crash, and they needed someone to fill in for a short while. I took that role, became the physician-in-chief at Santa Clara, and then the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, which is the nation's largest medical group, responsible for 5 million patients in California, Washington, D.C., Virginia, and Maryland. And in that role, I was able to lead the organization to becoming number one in the nation in quality based upon the National Committee for Quality Assurance, to be the leader in access and service and the use of information technology based upon J.D. Powell and Associates survey of both Kaiser Permanente in those regions and the surrounding programs, and to increase affordability with our prices being approximately 10 to 15% below that of the competition. I think that's the biggest success that I would define during my time as CEO at Kaiser Permanente, the ability to achieve what I think of as the triple aim, not to replace the one through the Institute of Health Improvement, but the triple aim of raising quality, making care more convenient and accessible for patients, and the ability to make care more affordable for individuals and their families. I'm curious how, how this happened. So you, you started out as a plastic surgeon, went to residency, was a wonderful surgeon, and then you started leading 10,000 physicians, 38,000 staff members. 
and then the national organization. How did that transition come about and how did you become I guess, good at being an executive? The transition is not as abrupt as you made it sound. Actually, starting after the first year that I was there, uh, I was given the opportunity to become the head of the operating room committee. At the time, I assumed it was my outstanding credentials. In retrospect, I think it was the fact that everyone else in the organization was smart enough to turn down the position, and I was the only one left standing. Uh, but I was successful in that role by bringing a strategic lens, which is what I teach currently in the Stanford Graduate School of Business, to bring a strategic lens to the challenges that were there with a short-term solution of bringing in, at that time, what was an unusual circumstance, uh, the various, I'll call them flying nurses, nurses being brought in by uh, traveling companies from across the country, an intermediate solution to be able to retain the nurses that we had at the time in the operating room, and finally, a long-term solution of creating a training program to make sure we always had an excellent supply. This was during the time period when there was a national nursing shortage. And once you're successful in a role like that, you get asked to do a lot of other things. And I was asked to expand in terms of both our internal and external services, expand in terms of improving the overall surgical outcomes, taking on accountabilities around quality. I had the opportunity to spend time at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and along the way, taking on added and added responsibilities, as I said, ultimately becoming the physician-in-chief at Santa Clara, which is a facility that takes care of over 300,000 individuals, more than 1% of the nation's entire population, and then the CEO in Kaiser Permanente. Great. So yeah, I appreciate the overview. You, you mentioned before that Kaiser, under your, your leadership, was able to achieve more affordable care, higher quality care, and, and more accessibility. What, what about Kaiser made this feasible? What were the changes that you guys implemented that you saw lead to success? Because I think generally Kaiser has a reputation of being one of the medical groups with the best track record of providing value-based care for patients. And I'm curious what differentiates you guys from others. I think you are correct that today we have that reputation for being one of the premier medical groups and therefore organizations in the country. But when I became the CEO, which was in 1999, we were in tremendous trouble. We were down to two days of cash in Kaiser Permanente and had to borrow a day to meet regulatory requirements in the various states in which Kaiser Permanente sold its insurance products. And my analysis at the time was that the traditional approach of Kaiser Permanente, which was simply to be low price that many people interpreted as being cheap. They often assumed the quality was not particularly good, although the data said it was above average, but to try to focus on a new strategy, a strategy of quality and service differentiation at a competitive price. And that was a new way to think about the organization and again, bringing a business school perspective, combining it with a medical school expertise, my view was that there were four aspects to our program that were distinctly better than the competition around us, and that by embracing them and leveraging them, that we could differentiate ourselves in a way that others in our markets could not. The first one was integration a recognition, both horizontal and vertical integration, physicians in the same department working together as one, and ones between departments working together. 
that allowed us to do a variety of things. One of the pieces that I think was very successful was the idea that when our patient was seeing a primary care physician and the physician felt that a referral to a specialist was needed, rather than having the patient come back subsequent days to be seen by the specialist, immediately connecting the primary care physician with the specialist and the patient at the same time, 40% of the time we could solve the patient's problems there and then, and even when we could not solve it there and then, the connection was already made and the process of evaluation and then ultimately treatment was sped up dramatically faster than in the community around us. The second was moving from fee-for-service to capitation. Being paid in advance, and I mean at the delivery system level, not just at the insurance company level, allows the incentives to align. When you are paid on a capitated basis, you have a high priority in prevention because you want to help patients avoid the heart attack or the stroke. In a fee-for-service world, the incentives are reversed. You have a high incentive to be able to avoid a medical error. You have a high incentive to provide care sooner in the most cost-effective way, which often involves the use of technology, which is the third, what I think of as pillars upon which excellent care can be built, which is technology. And I don't mean the new shiny devices being touted by some company. I mean very specifically tools that are available that are going to make care more convenient, quicker, and less expensive. A great example to me of that is video. Video allows patients to get care from the best expert regardless of where that individual is located and to be able to do it in an immediate kind of way. Another good example is the use of secure email so that patients don't have to miss a day of work or school to be able to get their problems identified and be able to have a response given. When I was the CEO, by the time I left, we were doing almost as many virtual visits as we were in person. We had about 16 million in-person visits and about 14 million virtual visits. Care provided sooner, higher quality, more convenient, more rapid, at lower cost. And then finally, leadership. I wrote a paper for the New England Journal of Medicine a few years ago, talking about the crucial role that physician leadership uh, plays. And I say physician leadership, not that the leadership of others is not very important, but if you're going to try to change the behavior of doctors, they're only going to do that if they trust you. They trust colleagues with whom they've worked and for whom they and whom they respect, but they're less likely to do so when it comes to an insurance company executive or a hospital administrator. So those four pillars, integration, capitation, technology, and leadership were the core elements that I was able to leverage to be able to achieve the superior quality, nation-leading, higher access and service in the markets in which we served at a more affordable price for patients. I just want to talk a little bit more about capitation and technology. So as you alluded to, we have a number of startups and tech companies trying to go into healthcare, and a lot of them don't have risk-bearing models or capitated models. But systems that have risk, such as Kaiser and, and the VA health system, have been early adopters of technologies like telemedicine. So do you think that it's really important for these new 
companies to really focus on bearing risk and, and to go to market with that in mind? In the courses that I teach at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, I emphasize that there really are two approaches entrepreneurial innovative companies can take. They can use the current inefficiency, the friction created by the current system to generate a significant amount of added dollars, or they can create technology that's going to make care become less costly. And although you would think that the two would go together, in the current FIFA service world, they actually don't. So that if you're going to try to create products that can be given out or utilized or prescribed by physicians that are going to be compensated for by payers, regardless of whether the particular technology improves outcomes, which is the current system in the FIFA service world, you're going to be able to be a successful company, but not one that's going to raise quality and lower costs. What's a good example of that? The robot. There's not been a single study showing that the surgical robot improves quality, and without any question, it adds cost. And yet what you see is that those companies that produce it are some of the most successful. Why is that? Because hospitals, purely for reputational reasons, mm -hmm choose to buy the robot so they can announce the fact that they have the robot. Or if you're going to try to create a service that's going to, well, in contrast, if you're going to try to create a service that's going to lower utilization, so no one in the FIFA service world wants to see that happen. Right. And so the products that companies might develop that are actually going to raise quality but lower utilization and lower cost by getting better care to patients, not by restricting it, exactly the opposite by preventing problems from happening, they're not going to be rapidly embraced by a FIFA service delivery system. Now, the challenge is that we see a world that is evolving. Healthcare continues to go up. I just saw the report today at 6% a year in the United States, 55 to 6%. Every other measure, GDP is going up at 2%. Inflation overall is going up around 2%. Wages are going up now 3%. As long as costs rise twice as fast as the ability to pay, disruption is inevitable. In the business school, I've now studied 100 industries, or 100 industries, 100 companies and industries. I can't find a single one that has been as inefficient and underperforming as medicine that has not gotten disrupted. I see disruption as inevitable and when that comes, of course, technology that raises quality and lowers cost will be broadly embraced. So the issue for entrepreneurs is one of timing. In the short run, the products that are going to be most successful are ones that are going to drive more volume, but not necessarily any improvements in patient outcomes. As strange as that might sound to listeners who might not be in the medical profession itself, and yet, in the longer run, it's going to be exactly the opposite. And I think right now, everyone in healthcare is caught between these two extremes. They're not sure what to do. It's always easier to make money doing more than doing better. And yet, they know that inevitably, over time, value will have to replace volume as the center point for both medical uh, provision 
and for medical reimbursement. Where is this change towards risk-bearing models and capitation going to come from? Does it have to be policy? Does policy have to disrupt fee-for-service or can this come about through new industry companies or, or through new payers that, that really try to bring value to patients? I don't think it's going to come through policy. I don't think it's going to, certainly will not come out of a governmental agency or regulatory agencies, despite the rhetoric that's there. We've been talking about this for several years and the movement is so minor. I see three ways it could come. The first one is from an organization like Haven, the Amazon Berkshire Hathaway JP Morgan Chase group. And it's interesting as I read the social comments about this organization, people are upset that they've not announced major programs and major changes. I think it's the fact that the CEOs are very smart people. And they know they've got to learn before they can actually implement. But they are learning and they are implementing. And anyone who believes that this is going to remain a not-for-profit only for the one million employees of those three companies, I'm sure also believes that all Amazon does is sell books. This will be a for-profit venture designed to take care of 50 or 60 million people Amazon today provides retail sales to one-sixth of the nation. They're going to do the same in the healthcare sphere. The second place it could just come is from a broader sense of self-funded organizations. You may have read in the New York Times about two months ago about a company in Wisconsin that was offering its people $5,000 to go to Mexico to have the total joints replaced, and they were sending a Mayo Clinic trained surgeon to do the procedures themselves. Finally, I think it might just come offshore. It will require a recession, and we could debate a long time whether a recession is inevitable. Certainly looking backwards in history, they always occur. We haven't had one for a while. And when that happens, particularly again, the self-funded companies are going to look for alternatives. I don't know if your listeners have ever heard of a physician named Dr. Debbie Shetty. Debbie is a friend of mine. He's a heart surgeon, trained in, in England and the United States. He owns 11 heart hospitals in India, where he does heart surgery for about $1,800 a patient, rather than the United States, where it's over $100,000 per case. Wow. By the way, the results that he gets are as good or better than any program in the United States. States. He was, by the way, also Mother Teresa's physician. He's a pretty famous individual. If you ask Devi, you know, what does he do? Remember, he's a heart surgeon. He still operates every day. He'll tell you that he sets the price for human life. And what does he mean by that? What he means is that every morning he shows up at the hospital, there's 30 mothers with 30 babies. They've all been well worked up. They all need surgery. And he has to tell them he does a lot of free surgery, but he can't do it all for free. And in India, only 10% of people have coverage. So if they can borrow the $1,800, they get surgery. If not, they bring their child home to die. If he lowers the cost to 1500 or 1200 more children will live. He will have elevated the price of a human life. Why do I tell you all of this? I don't think very many listeners are going to travel to India to have their heart surgery done unless they have family that there. But he's also building a 2,000-bed hospital in the Grand Cayman Islands. He's already completed the first two stages of this on an island of 50,000 people. About 50 of those beds are for the people in the Grand Cayman Island, 
Miami is an hour plane ride from the Grand Cayman Islands. The Grand Cayman Islands, for your listeners who have been there, Seven Mile White Sand Beach, the tourist culture, very safe. They speak English. I don't know whether the disruption will come from Amazon or through the big employers or offshore, but I do believe that at the current trajectory that we're going, that it is inevitable and it will happen sometime in the next five to 10 years. I agree a lot. I think that these new models of medical tourism are going to change a lot of things. And, and I'm pretty excited about it. And, and the example you brought up about the Cayman Islands, about the company that sends people to Mexico with the Mayo surgeon, it's, it's very powerful. And I think it's going to come for sure. So you mentioned that disruption is on the horizon. Besides novel delivery systems or novel payment models, what specific technologies are you most excited about in bringing about this disruption? The technologies that I believe are most exciting are ones that are here now, and by the way, are actually relatively inexpensive. Video is definitely a technology that I believe will become increasingly important. I think 30% of what we do in a physician's office today will be done with video. Based upon the data we have from Kaiser Permanente, not only is the quality excellent and the care relatively immediate, but actually patient satisfaction is 10% higher utilizing it. A great example of that, we had, we had a physician located up in Santa Rosa, which is pretty far away from the Corbay area but he was one of the world's experts on kidney cancer, offering patients the opportunity to have a, a virtual consult consultation with him rather than driving up there. The majority chose it. And the feedback was amazing because they actually now could, in the comfort of their home, see the operations. He could put it on the computer screen, show them their scans, provide the information. And by the way, when I had a, a, a accident, I was walking down some steps in the rain and a gentleman above me slipped and fell and crashed into me and broke my leg. I went to the Kaiser facility there. The physician said to me, he'd be more, the orthopedic surgeon said, he'd be more than happy to do my surgery, but there was a better surgeon at a different Kaiser facility 30 minutes away from my exact problem. I actually never saw the physician until I was in the preoperative area on my day of surgery. We all did it. We did it through video. We did it through the electronic health record and the avoidance of pain. The ease of getting the information was fabulous. So I think it's going to be a very powerful long-term technology. The second one actually is the electronic health record itself. You know, if you look at Kaiser Permanente, you look at the performance. How did it become? How did I, how did I help it to become the number one program in the nation? A lot of it was by leveraging the, the electronic health record technology itself. A good example to me of that is hypertension. Hypertension is the number one cause of strokes. 40% of strokes result from hypertension. It's also a major contributor to kidney disease, to heart disease. Across the country, it's controlled 55% of the time. We controlled it over 90%. We had the same physicians. They're all excellent, but they're excellent in the community. We had the same drugs. What was different? The electronic health record that opportunity to be able to take care of the patient's problem at every point of contact. We're able to lower the chances of patients dying from heart attack and stroke by 30 to 40%, the chance of dying from sepsis by 40%, and so on, simply by that, that constant availability of data. A third technology that I think is very powerful is data analytics. Data analytics allows a huge amount of, of information 
to be processed and provided back to clinicians. A great example of that are patients who are in the hospital on a medical surgical floor who tomorrow are going to be in the ICU. Now, why is that important? Because if they have a decline in their status, even though they may be, I'll say in quotes, resuscitated and sent to the ICU, their mortality is four times higher. I asked the people in our division of research, the TPMG division of research, can you identify 1% of our totally hospitalized patients? There are 3,000 of them in hospitals across Northern California. 1% of patients who tomorrow are likely to be in the ICU. And utilizing data analytics, by which I mean they had the laboratory data, they had the radiology data, they had the monitors next to the patient's beds. For any physician to look at 3,000 patients would be impossible. For a computer, it's moderately trivial. They were able to predict half of the patients and have doctors intervene, avoid the problem, raising quality, and lowering cost. And the final one, I think, is artificial intelligence. And for listeners, I want to differentiate. Everyone in the world uses the word artificial intelligence. Most of the time, what they're talking about are algorithmic care. Algorithmic care is good, but it derives out of people and to the, to the level that people make errors, the algorithms are going to make the same errors. How do we as physicians think about problems? We use uh, heuristic principles, shortcuts. A pathologist looking at a slide sees a lot of strange looking cells that are dividing, maybe it looks like it's sort of invading and causing cancer. When I use the word artificial intelligence, I mean true artificial intelligence. Give a computer application 5,000 slides of a particular type of tumor or a particular type of problem, 5,000 of which is cancer, 5,000 of which are not, and the artificial intelligence application might find 200 different variables between these two sets of slides, way beyond the ability of the human mind. And already we're seeing in these visual diagnostic areas that the machines are better than people. It's true for mammograms, it's true for complex pneumonias, it's true for aspects of dermatology, and the machines are only gonna get better and I think they could replace a lot of physicians, providing higher quality at lower price. Most commentators in this marketplace keep wanting to say, well, it's not going to get rid of jobs. I don't know why, if the technology is better than people with higher quality and lower cost, that's not going to be the outcome. Again, we see it in every other industry. When I teach in the business school and I study other organizations that have had this type of artificial intelligence, robotics, et cetera, coming into their industry, it has been able to raise value for the consumer and lower or decrease costs by eliminating the number of jobs. I think this is an inevitability, not in, next, not in the year, next year or two, but over the course of the next decade. It's interesting you mentioned video, telemedicine, as one technology that, that's breakthrough. Uh, you mentioned AI, you mentioned better data collection and data analytics. And interestingly, you also mentioned, you know, the EHR as really be being a breakthrough technology that you guys employed uh, at Kaiser that, that made a difference. Uh, I feel like today when people talk about the EHR, it's, it's more negative, right? Uh, most people are, are criticizing it and talking about how tech is overburdening doctors. It's overburdening physician workflows. Do you see this? Did you guys see this as a problem uh, when you were running Kaiser? Uh, how do you think we can address the issue of 
overburdening doctors with technology? The current electronic healthcare records make doctors work harder and force them to be slower. They are not well-developed tools for medical care. They were designed specifically around billing, not designed around the needs of patients and providing the best treatment for them in the most efficient and effective ways. What needs to happen specific to the uh, electronic health record, I believe, is here the government does need to step in and force the major manufacturers to open up their APIs, application programming interfaces. If they did that, then third-party developers could come in and be able to provide that same um, level of data in ways that are far more efficient for patients and for doctors. It could be put onto tablets. It could have uh, approaches that would allow patients to have more information to help better manage their own situation. The challenge today is that the manufacturers don't want to do it. And why don't they want to do it? Because they understand that as soon as those APIs are fully opened up, the barriers to switching from one manufacturer to another are going to drop and their market share, and more importantly to them, their prices and their profits are going to also plummet. So that's the problem that exists right now. The legislature could change it, could force them to open it up for the greater good of the American populace, but they're not going to. But let me also point out another piece. You may have noticed I left a particular set of technology out of my list, and that's wearables. And you hear a lot of hype about wearables today. We, the, the basic problem when it comes to technology, I believe, is that developers take something that's really interesting and cool, and then they say, how can we apply this in healthcare? What needs to happen is they need to say, what's the problem we're trying to solve, and how might I develop technology to address it? I'll give you a couple of examples. What's the most commonly purchased consumer technological device in the United States today? Most people would say it's some variant of the Fitbit, some variant of that type of monitor. Those monitors only do two things. They tell you how well you slept last night. They tell you how far you went. People who were not wearing them, they know exactly how well they slept last night. And the people wearing it don't sleep any better the next night as a result. Number two, how far you went. I, I'm a runner, I'm a marathon runner, but I have my iPhone. You don't like your iPhone because it's too heavy, you can buy a $5 plastic pedometer. So why are these devices the highest selling medical device directly to consumers in the United States today? Despite no evidence, not but a single study that actually improve health outcomes because they solve a problem. What's the problem they solve? It's called the December dilemma. Christmas or Hanukkah is coming. There's someone you love a lot. You want them to have something that's really cool that we're wearing all the time, and it's got to cost between $150 and $200. This solves that problem. The fact that people may never use it or use it only for a short while, that's not the issue. And by the way, for listeners who might be a little older, inline skates were exactly the same solution. Half of these products, which also cost between $150 and $200, never came out of the box after December 25th. Why I point this out, physicians don't want and patients don't need hundreds of pieces of data flowing into the doctor's office 
off of little tiny monitors for the heart or monitors for anything else that the technology would allow to be provided. What is needed and no one has developed yet is to be able to have a device that tells patients not just when they're sick, but when they're well. How might that work? Well, think about it this way. The most common problem that people have in the United States today is chronic disease. How do doctors manage patients with chronic disease? Well, they say, I'll see you now and I'll see you again in three or four months. In between, the patients could be having a terrible problem and need care, but not be aware of it. Or three months, they might be doing just fine. That information is currently available for a lot of chronic diseases off of a wearable device. It would change totally the way we provide care. I would tell patients, don't come back and see me on a fixed rigid schedule. When the device tells you that there's a problem, I wanna see you right away. And if the device says you're doing fine, I don't need to see you more than maybe once a year. By the way, this technology actually exists. And that's what we didn't use in Kaiser Permanente, but it only has one particular application. That's an implantable cardiac defibrillator. And by law, when that machine fires, the information is sent to a database. So we know that if the machine didn't fire, you didn't have a problem with your cardiac arrhythmias. And if it did fire, you have a problem or likely to have a problem, and we want to see you right away. And so rather than scheduling patients to come in every three months, which could be two months and 28 days, later than they should have come in, or unnecessarily coming in when they're doing just fine. We saw them once a year, higher quality, more convenient, lower cost. Why don't the companies want to do it? They're afraid of the malpractice risk. That's what has to change. And right now, we've not figured out how to bring forward the technology that's most efficient because invariably, it's going to impact a company's risk company's revenue or company's profit. And that's the big problem, I believe, in American healthcare today. I saw fascinating data today, which said that in spite of the fact that actually less care was being given because fewer people had coverage these days than a, than a year ago, that the costs were going up dramatically. And the sole reason was price. Healthcare today is driving its economics by figuring out how to gain market control through acquisition, through consolidation, through advertising, and then to drive up costs by higher prices. That is a recipe for disruption. So I, I, I want to go take a little step back to, you brought up that point um, with, with wearables, right? That they're most popular today as, as kind of a, a fun Christmas gift. And, and I completely agree with that. I have a I've had an Apple watch sitting on my dresser for months now that I haven't worn in, in forever. Um, but it's, it's interesting to see you know, a lot of these tech companies moving more and more into the wearable space. It's not just Apple. It's not just Samsung, right? We had Google buy Fitbit for $2 billion. Uh, I'm not sure if the acquisition closed not or yet, but that's an interesting trend where these companies that already collect a lot of data and individuals are trying to collect health data now. Do you have any, any thoughts on that or any, um, you know, when you heard about the Fitbit acquisition, th does it seem like an interesting move to you? It's the same thing I was saying before. There's one, you can earn a lot of money by having something that you can sell to a lot of people. On the other hand, you can find ways to lower cost. 
And the companies you're talking about are just analyzing this as they would any other acquisition from a business perspective. Now, I have not looked at the financials to tell you whether it's a good purchase or a bad purchase, but I believe that these companies see an opportunity to provide more and more services, raise the prices, and generate the profits. Nowhere in this equation is it being driven by what's the optimal way to lower costs to patients. Nowhere is there real data and information, I believe, on the true quality impact. I mean, if you look at the Apple uh, study that they just announced, where they looked at 400,000 people trying to ascertain who has undiagnosed atrial fibrillation. That's not the big problem we have when it comes to atrial fibrillation. The big problem we have are patients who have atrial fibrillation. We know they have atrial fibrillation and we're concerned because either their heart rate gets too high or too low. And that technology has the ability to tell the patient how they're doing, but that's not the approach they looked at. Now, I don't know whether they look at it because the number of people with atrial fibrillation is so much smaller than the overall population that the company thought it could sell a lot more devices to the people who don't have it. Remember, 99.5% of the people didn't have it. Or whether it's simply a question of not wanting to take the risk of truly trying to solve a medical problem. But the solution that got taken forward, published, and hyped, from my viewpoint, is the least important one for medicine. And there's very little data necessarily in this population that even identifying the problem has clinical significance because most of the people are going to have very intermittent atrial fibrillation, not the kind of ongoing uh, heart problem that makes the atrium be like a bag of worms and keeps blood immobile inside of it for long periods of time until it can clot and then ultimately go and be sent to the brain to create a, a stroke. So that, this to me is the crucial problem that is sitting there when it comes to the wearable devices. We don't yet have ones. I've not seen one that truly is going to lower the cost of healthcare while raising the quality that's provided. So uh, along a similar vein, um, you know, we've seen also, uh, along with wearables, we've seen a lot of tech companies uh, getting more and more interested in the personal health record, or electronic health record space, right? So Apple has their huge initiative to essentially build integrations with hospital systems and get access to health records through uh, Apple Health Kit, right? And make this available to application developers to sort of speed up the process that you brought up earlier around uh, EHR vendors opening up their APIs. Apple's kind of doing it themselves and, and building uh, programming interfaces for, for iOS developers or researchers, et cetera. Uh, do, do you find this interesting at all? Do you, do you find the idea of patients or individuals being able to own their health record on their phone as meaningful to actually improving quality of care? I'm not optimistic that the approach that's utilizing will get to the end point you're describing because the most important information is sitting inside the electronic health record for which it's very hard for the patient to access it in a way that gets it into the cloud that the company is using. Remember, Google tried this, um, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago, and it didn't work very well. Microsoft has tried all of this. I think this is a little bit of a different play that's going on, which is that the companies want to become the healthcare consultant to patients. 
they'd like Alexa or one of the other devices to be where you go to ask a question. What I'm not in any way convinced yet is they want to take care of the serious medical issues that are plaguing this country and making us, I just saw today, that the average cost per person in the United States today has now passed $11,000. You know, Germany is the next highest country in the world, and I think they're somewhere around eight or 9,000, and Switzerland's back behind them, or maybe vice versa, at five or 6,000. Almost everyone else is half of what's in the United States. I don't see these processes of the companies driving improved healthcare. I do see them being very successful as a business proposition, because once you've made that link with a particular company, you're less likely to want to switch to someone else who may be offering a similar product. In a sense, healthcare is becoming the same as retail, but I think that the consequences for people who have medical problems are very different than the ones who are trying to buy a, uh, some, I don't know, kitchenware or being able to, provide, to purchase a, a book online. I just want to, to go back to your point about these companies being very successful. So, for example, Apple Health Records, I think they could bring a lot of value in allowing services to be built on top of what they have. But strategically, do you think that's the move? Because we get into the same problem of application developers. Why would these third parties actually want to integrate with Apple Health Records? What's in it for them to build on top of it and to actually make their data interoperable? Is it not the same issue that we, we already have with misaligned incentives for sharing? Oh, I don't think they have any interest in doing that. I've not heard a single one of them uh, embrace this or, or want to do it. I think this is an alternative, I'll call it a customer acquisition strategy to make uh, individuals be particularly um, committed to their particular company, its applications, uh, its other tools that are going to become uh, available. So no, I, I agree with you completely. I, th I think this is saying to consumer, this is a consumer, not a patient issue. And what I mean by that is that patients have serious disease. And I don't think that any of these applications that I have seen are going to have a major impact upon improving either the quality or lowering the cost. On the other hand, as a consumer, you want a lot of convenience. You may want some data and some information. You want to know where you can purchase a particular device or supply, maybe a drug, maybe a doctor, less expensively. He's going to be very good at doing that if they have enough data uh, sitting inside their applications. I think right now it's far away. One of the big confusions, I believe, is that there's a notion that says these technologies are going to be able to do in the general provision of care what I mentioned earlier relative to AI, able to do in the visual diagnostic areas. And the problem is going to be that no matter how much input is given, that data will not be clean enough for AI to be able to do its job. AI requires that the data be nearly perfect, because if not, it comes up with missed conclusions. It's why if you take 5,000 slides or x-rays that show cancer and 5,000 that don't, and you're 100% definite in both groups, AI is fabulous. But these other applications trying to use general patient information, you know, if 10 of us use the word pain, we might have eight different definitions of what is going on. My severe pain may be less than 
your, your limited pain and your uh, pain might be subjectively very um, different than the one that I am reporting to my physician. I don't see this kind of application leading to true AI solutions for, for patients. I do see them related to connections to businesses in a customer kind of way. Again, the same way, if you, if you think about some of the work that's going on on home monitoring devices, if I can get a device into your home that's going to allow you to uh, manage your lights, and your televisions, and your thermostat, etc., and you're coming to it every day, now I have the ability to bring you into my retail space. And that is what I think this big play is going to be, that these major companies are going to use health as another and maybe even more important way to bring you into their sphere to be able to, through various external vendors, sell you products. It's not that it's bad. It's just that it's not central to medical practice. It's not going to raise the quality of the United States. As you know, amongst the 11 industrialized nations, we're last. This isn't going to change that. And amongst those same nations, we spend twice as much as anyone else. It's not going to change that either. Thank you for listening to the BIOS Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.bc.